Welcome back, hoisters, to the Pilots and Petards podcast, the podcast with nothing much ado about aircrafts, but potentially everything to do with the first episode of a filmic series. Quick disclaimer, listeners, petard is a word, it is a real word, and petards are bombs. Our episodes will be broken into four parts, with the first part being mostly spoiler-free. Mo. <laughs> oh, you're calling me out? <laughs> Yes. Petard's throne. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to deny it. Part two will be a more in-depth look at the pilot, i.e. I'm free to roam and give spoilers. And part three will wander outside the pilot to any dangling threads of interest. And part four is the fun part. You can go to our website to learn more. And that's it. So let's start the show. <laughs> and this is Drew. I am the pragmatic cyclops of this podcast. And I'm Jimbo, the anti-millennial, non-conforming, existentialist pilot critic and Kenya the podcast. And unfortunately, Hoisters, the motherfucking magical Miss Mo, master of pilots, nobos, and spoilers, is out this week. She will be back next week. And joining us is our special guest, Ash. And Ash is going to introduce herself. Uh, hi, I'm Ash. Uh, I'm a- another podcaster. I have a show called the safari zone which is a pokemon themed podcast and i also have two star wars podcasts one called starships which is about romantic relationships in star wars and one called uh, the skyhoppers podcast which is just like a general star wars discussion show so yeah i'm very happy to be here thank you guys so much for having me those sound like fun podcasts i'm not sure how in the world you have time for three podcasts but (laughs) i don't making a lot of money off those things huh Uh uh-huh yeah sure that's yeah (laughs) (laughs) It helps that I do one of the shows with my family who will, like, hold me accountable if I try to skip out an episode or something. Yeah, it helps. Which one of the two do you do with your family? Like, the relationship one? No, I do uh, the Safari Zone, the Pokemon one with my family. And this, this, the relationships one is just me, and then I bring on guests, and then the other one is me and my, my really good friend, and we just talk about Star Wars. But, yeah, having your family as your podcast co-host is one of the best and worst things. <laughs> Because they will, they will be like the people to hold you accountable and make sure that you like don't slip behind or make sure that everything gets out on time and uh, or and they'll just be annoying. So it's great. I love it. <laughs> yeah, Drew and I have that same type of relationship. It works out. Yes. Yeah, I feel like you need that in a podcast co-host. So um, we want to thank today's sponsor, which is Snacks. Um, thanks you, Snacks, for the ad-free listening. Um, if you are a judge or if you know a judge. Um, go eat a snack or encourage them to eat a snack before giving your next sentence. And also we would like to say, fuck you, Crooked Media. We hate you, and especially your crooked piece of shit ads. If you want to start an internet feud and, you know, up our profile, we are totally down for that. So contact us to sponsor a show or slander a rival. We'll do either. We are available for money. Okay, so um, join us today as we cast judgment and determine if the optimistic Netflix surreal comedy... Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt will be hoisted or not hoisted? That is the question. So we're going to jump into the first part of the show, and we will examine our backgrounds um, with this one. So Ash, you are our guest, so would you like to talk about your background with this particular show? I'm a big Tina Fey fan. So when I heard about the show, I uh, because I love 30 Rock, I adore 30 Rock and Mean Girls and all that stuff. So I was like, I'm definitely going to watch this show. And I watched the first season and was really impressed by it. I, I really liked it. And um, and then I watched up until about season three, and that's when it lost. I don't even think I ever finished season three. Um, but I kind of want to get back into it uh, after watching this pilot. But yeah, I was a fan of the show for a while, but then it started... I, I feel like it was kind of going off the rails at one point. But I've heard I've heard that it's kind of... It's coming back. Yeah, in in spoiler uh, preview, Drew is going to put Tina Fey on trial later in part three 
And it sounds like me and Ash are going to defend her. So stick around, Hoisters, for part three of the show. Spoiling, spoiling the podcast. It's great for the listeners. Spoiler preview, man. Spoiler preview. Gotta give them a little taste so they stick around, you know? Drew, what's your background? I liked the show when it came out. I watched the first season on Netflix, but um, just the release schedule of Netflix is non-traditional, and so um, you really got to be in the right mood for things, and so I was definitely in the right mood for the first season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. It was a lot of fun, and then when the second season rolled around, like, you know, Jabot and I talk about it a lot, like, we make choices. You don't forget to text someone. You don't miss an opportunity. You decide other things are more important, and so I think I watched an episode or two of season two, and... I wanted to watch something else more, so I did. So I had a colleague at, at at work, and she came into work, and she was just like couldn't stop talking about and laughing. There's this music video parody that Titus does for the Beyonce song "Hold Up," and so that was my introduction to Kimmy Schmidt. And that video, I probably watched it four four or five times within the last couple of days. That thing just makes me laugh. It's so hilarious. So that was kind of what got me into the show. I didn't really love the show. I kind of watched it in the background like while I was doing dishes. And I kind of lost steam probably somewhere in the second season as well. Uh, so Jimbo, you want to hit us with that two-sentence summary of the pilot? Sure do. Kimmy and her mole sisters are rescued after 15 years of being kidnapped by a cult leader. After a talk show interview in New York City, Kimmy decides to stay in New York to start her new life. Will the Big Apple break Kimmy? Stay tuned to find out if you should give a steaming pile of crap. Now we will uh, move on to part one. So we're going to jump into um, part one of our show, which is the spoiler-free part. We're going to talk about the merits of the show without getting too much into spoilers or what comes later. And we'll begin with some show notes, some high points, some low points, some in-between. All right, so Ash, what was your response? Anything high, low, or in-between? There's certainly some low points in it. There's certainly some high points in it. I think um, the the whole, the whole cast is really great, um, except for I'm just going to call him Jenna from Dirty Rock because that's pretty much what she plays and everything. I can't really remember the actress's name, unfortunately. Jane Krakowski. Jane Krakowski. She's she's amazing in Thirty Rock. I love her in Thirty Rock. But watching this, I was like, oh, this is virtually the same character. That's fine. And there's also some sketchy stuff like when you find out things about later in the series. I think for the most part, it does a good job of setting up the tone of what the show is going to be. You have just like this unironically optimistic and enthusiastic character in Kimmy. And, you know, they set up Titus really well in that relate that dynamic and the, the uh, Evelyn, the landlord. So I think it did a good, sh- a good job of like setting up what the show is going to be, the tone of the show. Uh, I think some of the jokes don't land. I can't think of specific instances, but I feel like that's probably a bad thing because they're just kind of forgettable in general. It has some great jokes that land well as well. Like it's, it's like for something that's supposed to be a comedy, I think it works. But yeah, that, that was just kind of my general impression. It's not the best pilot I've ever seen, Spoiler. but it did make me want to keep watching the show. So yeah. Go watch End of the Effing World. It's, it's the best pilot we've ever seen. I have almost the same exact response as Ash. I feel like the supporting cast is just a ton of fun, and they do develop those other characters really well. Jacqueline's character is just so cliche. She is a a typecast, I guess, actor actress. Like they just like get her to play the same the same character and everything she does. Yeah, she was on a previous pilot that we um, critiqued. She was yes. on Ally McBeal pilot as well. Um, so she's been a working actress for quite a while. Um, I'll I'll chime in. Um, I think that, in a way, I think this is more of an ensemble comedy than necessarily the title indicates, um, because there is strength like up and down this roster. 
Kimmy is definitely like the focal point, but yeah, Titus uh, was a huge high point for me, especially when he like showed his picture and his origin. It was a really cool character moment. And he was a little stiff to me at the beginning because I remember loving him from the first season. And then in his introduction, I was like, why am I so into this guy? And then he really humanized himself as the episode went on. And I was like, oh yeah, like he's, he's like a really, you know, out there character, but he's very grounded in his compassion, which I thought was cool. Yeah, they had a couple of great moments with Titus and Kimmy, specifically Titus wanting to make sure Kimmy was going to be okay. Like immediately when he finds out stuff about her, he's like, okay, you need to, I, I need to take care of you and make sure the situation is not going to like spiral out of control, which I really appreciated about that. And it set up their kind of friendship and dynamic really well. Yeah, Titus, I think, and Kimmy and a couple other characters, you know, it's a 24-minute pilot, but they had little tiny arcs, like little tiny moments to reel their character. And yeah, Jane Krakowski didn't. I think that's what made her feel very, like, I think that maybe is what had her stick out like a sore thumb because everyone else got to be slightly three-dimensional and she was very flat as, like, a parody. Would you say that's her or the writing? Both. I don't think the writing's necessarily doing her any favors. Yeah, I feel like it's a mixture of both. Yeah, she she didn't have much to work with. Well, I would just say that there's a lot of, like, play with, like, stereotyping caricatures in this show. And, like, the best characters, like Titus and Kimmy, um, play to some of those stereotypes and caricatures, but then they get to show their depth and their resolve. Um, Krakowski doesn't, you know, so um, there's a nice wink and a nod towards a lot of, like, those jokes, like the subtle ones that you talked about, but she doesn't get that wink or that nod. And I would like to go back to one of the other things that Ash mentioned. And I thought there was, this show was mostly a bunch of cheap laughs. Now, there were some good cheap laughs, but I felt like most of the cheap laughs were just that. They were just cheap. It's a weird tone of the show. You know, it's it's surreal, but there are stakes. And that's a really hard tightrope to walk. I, f- I feel like it's going for kind of a 30 Rock vibe. But the reason I think 30 Rock works is because it's not, it's not like incredibly emotional character arcs there's emotion there's like emotional character arcs in 30 rock but for the most part it's a show about like writing a writing a show basically and you know the stakes are all like oh but what if this thing would what if we can't do this thing before the show comes out or something it's all very like simplistic there's not a lot of high stakes when you bring in kind of this angle with kimmy who is this incredibly like emotionally scarred character it immediately is like upping the stakes and it makes it so that some of these jokes just don't work and it's like it's almost like making fun of her situation as opposed to trying to like empathize with her situation. I would say this too. I think that a strength of 30 Rock is a lot of the comedy is like relationship based and chemistry based, you know? Like how are these characters interacting? Like especially like Liz and Jack and Liz and Tracy Morgan's character and Liz and Jane Krakowski's character and then even their interplay amongst themselves whereas Kimmy like Unbreakable really in my opinion, only has that type of relationship between Titus and Kimmy. And so I agree with you in terms of the tone, but I also think that that's why it's not as strong of a show or a pilot as 30 Rock, per se. The uh, meta aspect of 30 Rock makes it, like, makes those cheap laughs and, like, and everything, I think, work a little better as well, because you're, like, poking fun at the industry. As opposed to kidnapping victims. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As, like, yeah. <laughs> 30 Rock is able to kind of do the more outlandish, ridiculous jokes. Like, my favorite 30 Rock jokes were always the ones where they would, like, there'd be a scene with Snapple iced tea, and they'd be talking about how great Snapple iced tea, and then one character would turn to the camera and go, can we have our money now? You know, like, that wouldn't work with this. But, yeah, I don't know. They're fundamentally different shows, but because they're written by the same person, they, I think they're trying to go for similar vibes, but I would definitely say 30 Rock sticks the landing a lot better than this does. 
I think we can move on shortly, but, but I have an interesting thing about our show notes. So for, for the low points, I wrote too much as in too many. I think I meant too many low points and Drew wrote not a whole lot. So this is, (laughs) I just, nothing really stuck out to me as like being low, low, you know, like this was a, I mean, I want to say like competent pilot, you know, but just not special for me. Like nothing. There was like two instances where like I really bumped on something, but otherwise I was like, this was pleasant. You know, I, I thought this was going to be way more problematic to be honest. There's um one more comment that I would like to make. Do you have, do you, uh would you like to add a high point or low point, Drew or Ash, before I before I maybe close up? I agree with I would agree with Drew. I don't think there's too many low points, but there's also not too many high points either. Like moments where I'm like, okay, this show is going to be amazing. You know, it's just kind of a like I said earlier, it's kind of like an in between pilot. Like good enough to get you interested in watching the show, but not necessarily the best thing ever. Drew, you got anything else? Uh, I want to honor our friend Audie, who mentioned that this show is very colorful, um, which I would totally agree with. Like oh, the color so palette in this show is really cool. And so I think that the cinematography is is good. And, you know, the thing is, you don't necessarily talk about that with a sitcom. And so this was this was really nicely shot. And um, they're definitely like bouncing around New York, which is very cool. I would say they succeeded where I thought Glee failed. How so? Well, I thought Glee just the colors just bugged me. And I didn't appreciate it. And I thought it was way too cliche. Whereas Kimmy Smith's colors, you know, like there's a lot of vibrant colors, but it kind of, yeah, it seems cool and fun. And it doesn't take away from the other stuff that's going on. Whereas Glee is just like, oh my gosh, like more stupid colors. Well, Glee is like an oversaturated color palette. Kimmy Schmidt, I feel like, is kind of using the colors to contrast with the world around her. Like she's wearing this bright yellow sweater and light up sneakers in terrible grungy New York. And, you know, it works really well, like, from a cinematography perspective, like, the vi- for the visual storytelling that they're trying to do. As opposed to Glee, where it's just like, here's a bunch of colors, have fun. You know, like, there's not there's nothing really interesting to look at there. No, it's not fun either. All right, uh, Jimbo, I'm good if you're good. No, I'm not good yet. I would like okay. to close all right. out. All right, all right, all right, all right. The, the show's premise, and we can talk about this premise maybe a little more in part two, but I, I felt like half of the premise was really great. And then the second half of the premise was just way too much of like a Rob Schneider movie from the 90s. Like, like Kimmy could have very well been played by Rob Schneider in one of those like goofy, stupid Adam Sandler or uh, sorry, Happy Madison productions. And so like that part really annoyed me and really took away from the half of the premise that I did like, which was, as Ash uh, alluded to, like the unbreakable character. Jimbo, the amount of acid and derision in your voice when you said Happy Madison made me smile. Nice. <laughs> As it deserves. Yeah, Jimbo, I think I think that's a good point. You know, like um, there were parts of this that were very basic and were very um, interchangeable with any other goofball, screwball comedy. And so, you know, they had they had a really good opportunity. It seems like they had money and they had smart people working for them. So, you know, they could have done better in places. All right, Hoisters, and so now we are going to transition into our MVP. And for any new listeners, this is the most valuable part of the pilot. And as always, we're going to let our guest, Ash, hit us with her MVP. Kimmy Schmidt, Ellie Kemper, the actress. I think she does a great job in the first episode. In later episodes, it kind of wavers a little bit. But Kimmy Schmidt is an incredibly difficult character to pull off because, like you mentioned earlier, like she can get annoying really quickly. Um, but I think like she manages to walk the line, at least in my opinion, walk the line between like 
happy optimism without being annoying, like na- naivete and and all and all of those qualities that are like integral to her character without it being kind of like cringy and annoying and like secondhand embarrassing me. Um, so yeah, I think she does a gr- I think she does a great job. I really like Ellie Kemper as an actress too. I think she's really great. But um, yeah, with this character, I think she was kind of made to play this part. And I th- and as like the title character of a show, I think she does a good job with it. So I heard in an interview that Tina Fey actually and the other gentleman, I don't remember his name, but they Robert actually Carlock. Yes. They actually built this show with her in mind. So they they kind of created the show for her. Or at least that's what they said. Um I want to agree with Ash's MVP. Um I think that this is a difficult tightrope to walk and that um one thing I liked about the pilot was that Kimmy had a lot more agency than I remember. You know, like the premise of the show and the setup is difficult to pull off with like a perky heroine. Um, but there's a really specific part I'm going to come back to during our filmic analysis um, that I think gives her character a lot more agency and pluck and spark. And it was like a really small moment. So, yeah, I think that this was a difficult uh, this is a difficult role and that Ellie Kemper was perfect for it. And she's she's doing a great job with it. And one thing that I'll just throw out her like facial expressions are to die for. Like she makes the best facial expressions and none of them really stood out as like a, something that I could point out in the pilot. But if you, if you stick around for the rest of the series, you are going to see some awesome, just like emphasis and kind of doing a lot with, with body language. That's a really good seg into my MVP Jimbo. Um, Cause Kimmy's dancing was awesome. Like, I did not remember that from the pilot at all, but do go back and rewatch it. There's a dance scene where she's just busting out like corny move, good move, corny move, good move, corny move, like getting the hips in it. Like I was impressed because I mean, Ellie Kemper's very funny, but then I was watching it. I was like, she's a dancer. Do you remember that? You can tell she's having the time of her life, especially in that scene. I would say the dancing didn't stand out for you, Jimbo. I didn't see her as more than just like a goofy white chick dancing. So I may have missed it, or Drew might just be making up stuff again. She had much better rhythm than your average goofy white chick dancing at a bar. Good for her. Yeah, way better rhythm. So my so my MVP is there's a joke about marriage. I loved it. It was very subtle. They don't they like it was one of those cheap laughs that really hit for me. It kind of uh equates being married with being with being kidnapped, and so like that like that that was my most valuable part of the pilot. And Jimbo, for the new listeners, how long have you been married now? I've been married for, let's see here, what month is it? Almost three months? That is, that's the golden anniversary there. <laughs> there there was a couple layers to that joke. And that was actually a joke that stood out, you know, um, as being much more 30 rockish in terms of its like subversiveness than necessarily a bunch of other jokes. So I do recall the exact joke that you're referring to. Yeah, it's a good one. All right, horses, so I think we're ready to move on to the moment before the moment we've all been waiting for. And this is where we are going to decide if we are going to rewatch the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Jimbo, why don't you go first? My first response was no, but I actually started randomly watching season four while I was researching for this for this uh, recording. And I might dive back into season four. There is, I think the show's developed and they maybe found their, their stride. I watched the first two episodes of season four and they were really good. Like, hmm. like they were hitting in all the spots that I thought the pilot wasn't. That's a nice endorsement. Um, I, yeah, my watch or rewatches, I might try to uh, watch a later season. Um, I fell off at the beginning of season two, 
But um, if you're saying season four is hitting it, um, maybe I'll jump in. I'm I'm between shows right now, so I'm I'm lost. I'm drifting. I would say I'd probably rewatch it. I like y'all were saying probably later seasons. Since I ha- I have seen up to season three, I might just skip the rest of season three and go right into season four. It is a fun show, and if I wasn't watching other stuff, then I'd probably watch it a lot more than I do now. It's just you know. It, it's kind of like what you were mentioning earlier. It's it's like there's so there's so many things to watch now um, that it's kind it's kind of hard to like kill your yeah I mean you have to kill your darlings sometimes I think um, but yeah I kind of want to give it another shot especially since it's kind of shorter seasons right if I'm remembering correctly I think they've only released the first half of season four yeah I might give it another shot all right hoisters and now the moment you've all been waiting for to hoist or not to hoist that is the question go ahead Ash. I I would say not to hoist. I think it's I think it's pretty solid. Ash, I got your back on this one. Um, this is not my favorite pilot we've ever done, but this is a competent pilot, and it has more fun moments and more um good character moments early on than I remembered. So um, Titus Andromeda is definitely helping to hoist to not hoist uh this pilot. Oh, definitely, yeah. I'm gonna hoist it. It's it's not it's not the worst pilot ever. It's nowhere near Buffy, but um, it's it's a hoist for me. So by split decision, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is not hoisted. All right, hoisters, we're gonna move on. Part two. We're gonna spoil everything in this section. We will spoil everything in this section. That's true. And part two is our filmic analysis and interpretation. We're gonna start off with our crab man, but then we're gonna move into plot and characters and whatever lit literary analysis that we found should be discussed a little further. Oh, actually, Drew, can you explain to our new listeners what the Crab Man is? Hey, Earl. Hey, Crab Man. For the new listeners out there, the Crab Man Award is for a role that is small, usually not a featured or a recurring cast member, but in a small role, they give back a lot. It's kind of an inverse proportion. Yeah, so character with very little screen time, very large contributions. And I, I saw a, like a just solid, in my opinion, a unanimous crab man. And it looks like Drew did not. I think Homeboy, at the very beginning of the show, the theme song, deserves a crab man. They alive, damn it. I mean, come on, dude. This, this guy was just such a crab man. So that particular character might lead a little bit into my, my Tina Fey roast, mostly because I kind of looked up to me, that one's a bit problematic because I'm wondering who the butt of that joke is. It's an Antoine Dodson riff. Antoine Dodson's a black guy who saved his sister from being sexually assaulted. And then this dude um, took his local news report, which I guess local news people love to make fun of people. Um, and then he turned it into um, an iTunes oh, song because he had an auto-tune. auto-tune. And then that guy who, you know, did that made a bunch of money because it sold on iTunes. And Antoine Dodson did get some stuff, but... I don't necessarily like that character because I think he's the butt of the joke. That's only part. That's that's not who that that uh, scene was actually based off of. I'll just say that. Mm, okay. Well, we can talk about that later. Okay. But um, that I talked a little bit about me expecting the show to be more problematic than it was. That part was a bit problematic to me. There were not black writers for the pilot, and neither of the executive producers are people of color. So um, watching it again, uh, knowing what I know now about Antoine Dodson. Uh, I didn't like that as much, but I mean that uh that that theme song is catchy as fuck. Oh yeah, I'll give it that. Okay, so Drew's. I can jump in with my crab man. Go ahead, man. All right, sorry, shit all over yours. Yeah, yeah, um, you sure did, man. I like that slightly creepy bro at the bar. 
uh, when Kimmy is like talking to a normal person and she so wants to be kissed and she so wants to make out. I don't even know what guy you're talking about. <laughs> you don't know this. He like he says her hair smells nice. And he says one more like weird creeper tastic thing. And Kimmy, it's it's just a nice juxtaposition between, um, you know, Kimmy's naivete and like her earnestness and like just how gross New York is and how gross like dudes at bars are. So I thought um, he did a little with a lot or no, he did a lot with a little. I would have to agree with you, Drew. I thought that moment was pretty great. Just just for as far as like a character moment for Kimmy and just kind of like, hey, look how scummy men in New York can be. You know, I don't, I, th- I thought that was a great moment, so I agree with you. I do like the guy in the beginning. I after learning all of this, I'm I see that it's a lot more problematic than I initially gave it credit for. Listeners, I will put this in the petardar. Some dude kidnapped three w- women in Cleveland, and the show's kind of based off of that event, among others. And this guy gives this this retelling of what happened. It's and so the the beginning's really based off of this interview. And if you just maybe, you don't have to necessarily watch that much of it, but, but if you click on it and just maybe view like a couple, like the first 15 or 30 seconds, you'll have an idea. I think I know to what you're referring, but I mean, to me, it's still local news people putting on stereotype or stereotypical people that, I mean, I know someone who worked at a local news station and those people are like the, the news producers are always trying to find some weird person to put on so that they'll go viral and, or they'll just like chuckle at it and like, Sometimes it's funny, but sometimes, you know, the butt of the joke is not what I want to laugh at. So I think I know the clip you're referring to, but to me, it's, it reminds me of like that Terry Dotson thing, especially when it becomes a big old auto tune theme song. All right. Jimbo, do you want to come over? You want to make this unanimous crab man? No, I'm not, man. I'm sticking with my crab man. I think he's a solid crab man and, and Drew's just, just being a hater. He's being a moral elitist. Understood. By split decision, um, creepy bro at the bar, uh, is the crab man for unbreakable commission. Crab sounds. All right. So now, uh, listeners, we're going to move into a kind of literary analysis of pilot plot and characters. There will be some spoilers and we might reference some outside materials. Hello spoilers. Mo loves this part. I kind of want to jump in with mine first because it relates to something we talked about. My favorite scene that really turned me on to this show as a not hoist was when Kimmy's about to give up and she grabs the rat in the garbage can. That gives her character so much agency because it goes to that flashback of them being stuck in, you know, the bunker. And Kimmy, Kimmy fights it, you know, in the ways that she can with the power that she has as like a kidnapping victim in like a super shitty situation. You see that she still has her pluck. And so it reveals a lot about her character. So. Uh, that particular scene and that particular moment really turned things for me. And I think if I hadn't seen that, I would be hoisting. So what were y'all's reactions to that particular scene? And did it resonate with you like me? That was a great use of a flashback. Kind of remember there being more flashbacks. So obviously they're going to come in the later episodes. We've talked about with other pilots just overdoing the flashbacks. And I feel like Kimmy Schmidt did not do that. They, they started in the bunker and then they, they bounced back to it just very briefly, just enough to, to do that character development that Drew's talking about. And yeah, she does have a ton of agency. She is she is a strong character. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I think that that moment is probably, I think the strongest thing in the episode that kind of sets up the impetus for K- Kimmy's character going forward. You know, that she is this person who's not going to back down from what she wants to accomplish. Um, whether it was when she had like little, uh, little to no agency in the bunker, or whether it's like just living in New York and trying to make it on her own, like she's not gonna, 
she's not going to let anybody stop her because she's stronger than that. And I thought that was, upon rewatching it, I was like, okay, this is the moment where I'm like, she she made her decision. She's not going to let anybody tell her that she can't do this because she knows that she can. And uh, it was just, she's she's pushing past all those demons and just trying to move forward and get started with her life. And uh, Kimmy is, this is for you, Fitz, juxtaposed against Titus. And this show could very much be called the breakable Titus Andromedon or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, let me ask you this. Like, is, is Titus broken? Because he's still there. He's so broken. Why? He's stuck around. He has a job. He's handing out arcade stuff in, uh, in Times Square. Okay, well, he's not paying his rent. He's, he's telling Kimmy to go home so that she doesn't become him. Dude, he's so broken, man. He, ga- he gave he's up on giving up on everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, those are valid points. He's probably just there because he doesn't want to go back to... Where's he? He's from the South somewhere, right? He's, he's from, from Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. Who wants to go back to Mississippi? Come on. No one. No one who's ever left Mississippi. Yeah. I'm fine alienating that state. I plan to never go. This this will transition into one of mine. And then uh, another one that, uh, that uh, we talked about earlier in part one. It really rubbed me the wrong way with Kimmy's immaturity. And that's, and that's why I thought it was like a Rob Schneider movie. My uh, first impression was she should be a lot more mature. She spent 15 years in a bunker. It doesn't mean like her development stopped. There are some studies that, that do suggest that youth who, who persisted in antisocial behaviors exhibited deficiency in elements of psychological maturity. So, so there is some evidence to, to maybe insinuate that, that she might suffer from, from uh, some type of psychological uh, maturity. I felt like she should have been older, especially with like her losing her, her purse. She should be so defensive. And this is the part that I think really doesn't show her as being a victim. She should be so defensive of everyone. And I think that's one of the conflicts I had with, with the premise as well. Is like she's playing a middle schooler in New York City when I feel like she should, she might be a little immature maybe, but she should be a lot more defensive of, a, or I mean like looking out for herself. I think it makes sense that she's as naive as she is. She even says, like, she lost most of her life, so... Would you say she's more naive or immature in the pilot? I think she came off as, like, incredibly naive about people. Like, she gets out of this situation, this terrible situation where people have treated her terribly, and she just... Her response is not to, like, seclude herself away from people. It's to try to see the best in everybody. So that's why she doesn't think about, like, people stealing money out of her backpack or, like, living with this objectively kind of weird guy who's not treating her very nicely in the beginning. So I think it was just, like, the way she decided to react to that trauma. But I could, I could be wrong. I don't, I don't know. I, that's just how, that's just how I was reading it. I, she was immature, but it felt like it was justified within, like, the story they were trying to tell. Like, Sorry. emotionally, she would be very immature because she would never, she, she would have the chance to, connect emotionally with five people like the people in the bunker and the reverend who i mean she could never sorry not any of these people with the reverend you know or anything like that like she didn't she wasn't getting that that like that like uh, emotional relationship i'm I'm not phrasing this very well like a like a fulfilling emotional relationship with anybody so it made sense to me that she was a little bit immature yeah i don't think she had a healthy relate um emotional relationship with anyone even with like her fellow victims like they may have been codependent but um, it definitely, like, she never, like, saw the model of, like, a healthy relationship. The only thing she had to base it on was, again, she got kidnapped as an eighth grader. So I could see her understanding of relationships and her understanding of the world being stunted at that eighth grade level. But I think that speaks to what 
Jimbo was saying that like it would make sense for her to be naive about the ways of the world, but um, I don't think it makes sense for her to be immature. I had posted something on, on, on Reddit because there wasn't a discussion about the pilot and there were other people that made that same comment. And that's why I looked into it. Cause I thought, I actually thought that there would be research to support what I was saying that maybe people that, uh, that went through traumatic experiences would, would, would mature faster. That's like, that was my natural thought. I couldn't find anything to support that. In fact, the only stuff I found actually contradicted that. So <laughs> there's always this weird, thing whenever somebody who's never experienced a traumatic event tries to write a character that has experienced a traumatic event because it's like you can't you can't put yourself in those shoes unless you've experienced that and and seen how how it's affected you personally no matter how many people tell you what their experience was like or anything like that it's a very personal thing so it kind of it kind of comes across weird so i see where you guys are coming from i did i think it was just a i, I think i just read it a little bit differently than y'all did but I mean, they made choices. It's a comedy. Yeah, that's true. They made choices. They cut things. They, like, kind of confronted a thing or two head on. The joke about, like, when she's like, yes, we did weird sex stuff. I was like, okay. Like, they're they're hitting that one head on. You know, you guys can't see me, but my eyes are bugging for the listeners. This was my other one that I was going to bring up. So so Kimmy is a rape victim. And then she she says, everyone in Indiana is just going to look at me like I'm a victim. And that's not what I am. And that definitely goes back to like Drew's comment about, about her, a, her agency, her emotional aspect. And if we already talked about it, then, then we can move on. But do, do we have anything to add? Um, I do work with some mental health professionals like in my, in my day job. And so one thing I've heard is like changing of the terminology. And so I have heard that people talk about being survivors rather than victims. Yeah, okay. You know, talking about the progression that you move on from as opposed to characterizing um, people as like the moment of their trauma rather that they are on a journey um, to internalize, live with that trauma, that event, but also move forward with their lives. So I think maybe um, characterizing Kimmy as a survivor rather than a victim, maybe a more progressive way of looking at it. So that's the, you know, the word that I read when I was, you know, reading about these other events from, from real life. Kim, Kimmy calls herself a victim as in people are going to look at her like, like a victim. So that's probably why I wrote it that way. As, as as my note in that moment it's the a character decision going i don't want this thing that happened to me to define me for the rest of my life it already took away so much of my life and i want to move forward and i want to get out of the place where everybody is only gonna treat me like a mole woman so i think in that moment it's her going i want to take a step forward and move on with my life like this is a character who does not want to be defined by the things that happened to her that's another strong aspect of her character and i think I think that's what the, you know, the pilot does do is it does establish her as like a strong female character. It works. It's weird and it's clunky, but I mean, people watch and people love this show and it it's it's a comedy about a horrific event, Kimmy dealing with it and how it affects her, but people watch it and it's funny. So, and they don't they don't skirt around it. So, you know, you can give the writers credit and you can especially give Ellie Kemper credit for like humanizing this character and forgiving her dimension like three dimensions nice and there's a question in the patardar that that will give us a little more information so stick around for that in part four cool cool ask do you have do you have any anything you'd like to bring up about the anything in the show story plot characters that we haven't covered yet it was kind of like i was mentioning earlier i just like the way the show handles the dynamics between the characters and how they complement each other like kimmy and titus 
um, complement each other really well, and they they're they're each other's foil because Titus, like we mentioned earlier, is the guy who just kind of gave up. Kimmy comes into his life and and seems to have a positive impact on him. Um, and the fact that the pilot sets that up from the very first episode, I think, is is great, and it really helps the show later on. Let me throw this out there, um, because we talked a lot about Jane Krakowski's character. I think that she was deficient as a character just because she didn't have an arc. Do you think that we would have liked her better if, like, plucky Kimmy had, like, gotten her job back from her? Because, like, we kind of leave her in a very – we leave Jane Krakowski's character in a very unsympathetic light at the end of the first episode. And then if I recall correctly, by the second episode, she works for her again. So do you guys think that we would have liked her character better if she'd had the same arc that, like, Titus and Kimmy get to have? I do think she was lacking some some empathy, which makes it really hard to relate to her. So yeah, no, I would say that. It would have been one thing if, like, the end of the episode, the shields would have come down and when she'd have been, she would have been like, okay, I like you, Kimmy, I'm going to give you the job back. It's very Jenna Maroney from 30 Rock, too, you know? But Jenna Maroney had those, maybe not in a pilot, it's been a while since I've seen it, but had those kind of character moments that showed who she really was and, get, and let you empathize with her a little bit more. We don't need her character. She doesn't. She doesn't really add much to Kimmy or the story that's being told in the pilot. Yeah, she's trying to find a job, but they they could have used a cameo of someone that's not going to be a reoccurring character. And then we don't have to worry about a reoccurring character just kind of coming off as really shitty the first time you meet him. Not necessarily shitty as in like a shitty person, but I mean like just a bad character. For time purposes, we need to get a lot more closer to the end of the show. This is our Put It Anywhere, guys. Quest for the best and worst pilot ever. That phrasing is going to stay with you forever, Mo. Yes, you it said is. it. It'll be, it'll be on her, her uh, tombstone. Um, for those new listeners, uh, we are systematically ranking um, from top to bottom every single pilot we watch. We take the pilot that we watch and we insert it into an already existing list. Which you can find on our website under the quest for the best and worst tab. Jimbo, I have an idea of where I would put this. Um, do you want me to throw it out there? Sure. Cool. Um, I think this is better than Cloak and Dagger. Better than Cloak and Dagger, not as good as Altered Carbon. I agree. I'll uh, I'll accept that and let's and let's place it and move on. Kimmy goes out, number twenty nine. Solve that easily. Nice. In part three. So Hoisters, this is when we're gonna move outside of the pilot now, and we're gonna just kinda dive into any themes or topics that we found interesting enough to dangle a bit. To the stage, the Stormy Daniels dangling threads of interest. Nice. Good job, Ash. That's like one of the better ones we've had. (laughs) I think we're going to put Tina Fey on trial here. We can, but first I want to throw one thing out there. Go ahead. Um, Real quick. Oh, man, that Matt Lauer scene was creepy as Foreshadowing. Oh, my God. I remember I was watching it this morning. I'm like, oh, man, this is terrible. This is just... Oh, oh my god, this is awful. And there was, like, he even made a joke. He made a joke about, like, trapping women or, like, kidnapping women. And I was like, ah. It was good in the context of the show. Hoisters, if you don't know, this this guy is a creep in real life. When he acts like a creep on the show before the whole world knew he was a creep. Yeah, Drew wrote down gross, and, and I agree. Yeah, you sick fuck. It just made my skin crawl. I was like, oh man, no, this is... I actually found that out after I watched the pilot, so so I didn't get to experience it the same way you guys did. I didn't know who that guy was, so this was something I, you know, I, I read about. 
there's another interview from a couple of years back where he's interviewing Anne Hathaway and like people just found all these interviews of Matt Lauer just doing and saying creeper shit that now that we know more about him is just extra creepier and but still creepy at the time. Fuck Matt Lauer and fuck him for like coming out and like being in public just a little bit. Like we don't need you, Matt Lauer. Like you made a lot of money. We don't ever need to see you again. I had another topic and maybe we, we, you know, we could just briefly touch on this. You know, there's a lot of women jokes and there's women being represented in the writing room. Do you guys have any comments to add about that? That's definitely the way to go with anything you're writing. If you have female yes. characters, you need to have women in the room. Um, because, I mean, I'm not saying that men can't write effective female characters, but there is a certain, like, a man is never going to understand what it's like to be a woman, right? Like, it, or like the thought processes or things. So you need somebody in there to kind of go, no, this wouldn't happen. <laughs> because like there's just things that you just don't know and, and the same i wouldn't know how i wouldn't know what's going on in a man's head i w- wouldn't really want to really but um it <laughs> i like that there's the female representation both in front of the screen and behind it and then and, and it's not just one woman and and this is definitely something that that many women have, have spoke about when you're the one woman in the room and, and drew has, has also talked about this as well it's harder to get your point across and when there's a lot of women in the room, or let's say half women in the room, a woman can say something and the other women will laugh and the guys will get it like, oh, wow, this is funny. Whereas like if there's only one woman in the room and the guys don't think it's funny, then they just like kind of shit on it or, or move past it. Yeah, um, yeah. I reference the article that talks about um, the women in the early Obama administration did something they called amplification, where like they had this concerted effort to when they were in a meeting together um if a woman brought up like a good point or an interesting point um another woman would consciously affirm that point or bring it up or amplify it and um by the end of the obama administration they had the largest percentage of women in female leadership roles of any modern presidency so yeah i i definitely agree i think a strong point of the show is that there's a lot of good female representation um in the writer's room and in front of the camera I can I can definitely sympathize with that because I work in a male dominated industry and it's it's a lot of people don't even realize it's a thing. I've had to bring it up to male coworkers before, like, hey, this is I said this two weeks ago, like you know stuff like that. And it's about it's a matter of like being assertive about it. I think at a certain point we just have to go, no, you didn't come up with this, <laughs> you know, or or like, hey, that was I said that or, or whatever. It, it's what I like about this show is just the. You can clearly tell that it was written by women. Some of the jokes, I think, don't stick very well, especially the jokes at the expense of the survivors. Uh, Jimbo and I have talked. We've watched some shows where we look into it at the executive producers and the writers. And, yeah, it it gets to be kind of obvious when there's no female representation or there's very little female representation. You can usually tell without watching the credits. There was that story that came out a couple of weeks ago about Evangeline Lilly and Lost, like how J.J. Abrams and some producers like essentially forced her to do a sex scene, like guilted her into it. And it's stuff like that where I'm like, I'm glad we're moving away from that kind of era and that stuff can be called out now and brought into the media and and given attention to so we don't have stuff like that happening again. I knew there was a reason I don't like J.J. Abrams. (laughs) Drew, do you want to get into this one? Get into it, Jimbo. Get out there. Throw some elbows. So Tina Fey has more than once been outspoken about not apologizing or explaining jokes. This is a quote from Tina Fey. My new goal is to not explain jokes. I guess she upset a lot of people with with a a Saturday Night Live skit 
a couple days or really, a really short amount of time after the, the, the Charlottesville riots last year. Where Tina Fey has actually like gone on the record and talked about like missing the mark with it. Yes, she has. Yeah, and she did, and she talked about it with David Letterman, but she just kind of talked about how basically the premise of the skit was that if you are upset with neo-Nazis holding a rally or if you're upset with, like, the Trump presidency and, like, what's happening in America right now, like, go eat a sheet cake. Eating a sheet cake is the way that you can kind of internalize those emotions or the way that you can fight back. And um, I get the joke, uh, but also it just kind of ended up being – indicative of like a larger debate on privilege you know people who can ignore horrific things that are happening versus people who can't and Faye admitted that she wishes she had put a little tiny addendum on the joke that was resist this way or in any way that doesn't fuel the fire that the neo-nazis or that you know the worst elements of the alternative right want so i think that's a good instance of her explaining a joke although she doesn't want to ash you're about to jump in you set a dangerous precedent when you refuse to explain jokes there's a certain aspect where i get it as a female comedian you're gonna have assholes going like oh but that wasn't funny you know like whatever like female comedians get it all the time there's still the stigma i don't know why but there's still the stigma that women aren't funny so i kind of understand where she's coming from but there's also exactly like what happened with that snl skit when you come from a place of privilege and people People, whether that from whatever minority, if you're making a joke about them, say this is not okay, then you should do exactly what Tina Fey did and kind of fess up and say, I'm sorry I missed the mark. Like, I feel like just putting out a blanket statement saying I'm not going to explain jokes anymore, it can set a really dangerous thing. Because sometimes you make mistakes and you need people to call you out for them. I, I have a different take. I, I, think, I think her job as, as a comedian is to tell jokes. Like, like, let's say LeBron James. Let's say it's the end of a game and he turns the ball over. He can apologize for turning the ball over, but he doesn't have to. Like, he's trying to make a play, and you either make the play or you don't. If you're constantly telling really shit, shitty jokes, well, then that's then that's some, something else. But if you tell a bad joke and it doesn't hit, like, you know, you turn, you know, whatever, you, like, blow it or turn it over, like, I don't think you have to go back and explain and apologize. I think it's, you know, it's going to happen, man. No, no, like, no one's going to hit all their jokes. I think you're kind of downplaying the significance or you're making, in my opinion, like a false uh, comparison between okay. like a mistake that a sports figure would make versus a mistake that a very public figure who is a comedian makes. Because I think that who has a lot of influence as well. Yeah, I am of the opinion that all art is political or that all art at least has. I, agree. Uh, I think there is intent. So I wouldn't equate um, a mistake by people of a different um, profession or occupation with an entertainer who does have a larger stage, figuratively and literally. I would agree. I mean, like, it's it's definitely a false equivalence, but but I think it gets my point across. Ash, what were you about to say? I was just going to say, I, I agree with you. It's not even a matter of, like, she's an entertainer. It's she's a public figure that people respect. No matter how you slice it, she has a voice, and she can use it to do good, or she can do something kind of stupid, like what she did with that SNL skit. And it can, it can cause harm to people or influence the wrong type of crowd or something. You know, like when something comes across just completely wrong. I'm not, I'm not a fan of comedians apologizing for necessarily offensive stuff. But if it's, if it's hurting another group of people or making light of a very serious situation, when maybe that wasn't necessarily intent in the, in, in the first place, I think they should definitely fess up and apologize for it. 
Like, there's a difference between, like, making an offensive joke and making a joke about a very serious thing that's happening right now and making light of it on a national stage to get people to kind of go, okay, yeah, I, I, I don't need to take this as serious. Maybe that's a subconscious thing or whatever, but I don't need to take this as seriously as I need to. I don't necessarily think Tina Fey did that, but I just think it's a it's it sets kind of a dangerous precedent if you just go, I'm never going to talk about my jokes or explain them or apologize or do anything, even if you totally screw up and should apologize for them. And Jimbo, I'll throw this thing out there too. I think it's very interesting you chose LeBron James as um, your example for this because I think he is a public figure who very much understands his platform and understands his influence. You know, he's outspoken um, about uh, political and social causes that he very much believes in. And, um, you know, I had this talk with my wife last night because Jimbo, you and I were texting a bunch about power, privilege, and influence. And, you know, I told her that I am very much of the Ben Parker mentality. You know, I had to tell her the Spider-Man origin story because, you know, that idea of great power inherently coming with great responsibility, I think it's true, or at least is an admirable maxim. But we don't live in a world of superpowers and we don't live in a world of Captain America. We do live in a world of difference in privilege, class, and power institutionally. And so I think that someone who does have more institutional power does have a greater responsibility to wield that power responsibly and to be accountable um, for the things that they say and they do, more so than someone who has less institutional power. I I would say that Tina Fey's record speaks for itself. I mean, if you watch Kimmy Schmidt, like she's tackling race issues she's she's tackling women's issues she's on the right side and, and and i think for people to jump on her for not telling the best joke i mean like her heart's in the right spot would have become a thing like cancel tina fey or something like that or everything she's ever done or ever tried to say that was positive and beneficial and helpful to people is now irrelevant because she made one shitty joke i don't i don't agree with that but i do think it's important that we do call out comedians actors public figures when they do like problematic stuff, but I don't necessarily think Tina Fey is the worst person who ever. Like I love, I adore Tina Fey. I love Tina Fey. Um, I even watched like a bunch of her crappy movies. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like in this particular situation, it was warranted. And I just, it's the whole philosophy of never explaining a joke or apologizing for a joke, which I know lots of comedians take. Where I just find that kind of problematic. I think it also comes back to the idea that we are all collectively on a journey to a better place together. You know, as long as you have like growth mindset and as long as you're willing to learn and admit mistakes, like I think that's where people should be at. I think that some public figures who like Jim, who like Jimbo said, their heart is in the right place and they're trying to better society. Like sometimes they're unwilling to accept that they've made a mistake um, or that they could do better. They're like, well, look what I'm already doing. And it doesn't take that much work to think critically about your place in society. And so I think that even if people are doing the right thing, there's still room for reflection and there's still room for getting better, you know, and as long as you're on that upward trajectory of like learning as much as you can about, you know, social issues and like your place and like your power within them, that's fine. But I also feel like what Jimbo and I were really discussing was like the idea of quote unquote white feminism. And the way I tend to explain it is people who kind of ignore intersectional issues in favor of the issues that kind of favor them or that concern them. Can you briefly explain to our listeners what intersectionality is? I explain intersectionality once a podcast episode, but yeah, if there's new listeners out there, um, the idea of intersectionality um, was really pioneered by a, a wonderful law professor uh, slash sociologist named Camilla Crenshaw. Um, she studied how aspects of our identity intersect. If you look at the intersection of like where race and gender meets, black women were being left behind, and she wanted to speak for that. 
the way I would define white feminism is um, a lot of people watched uh, Patricia Arquette win a well-deserved Oscar, I believe in 2013 or 14 for Boyhood. And she got on stage and she uh, made a speech about how it was so wonderful that she had won this this Oscar for portraying a working single mother and how women, you know, it was great that they were all together and that if women and black people and gay people and Hispanic people all got together that, you know, they would rise up and they would really change society. It's a wonderful sentiment. But what people kind of called her out for was that that it, that statement ignored the intersectional identities of black women and Latina women and gay women. And so um, she could have been more inclusive in her ideas. And Patricia Arquette, to her credit, has become a super inclusive um, all around feminist and not just a white feminist. So that is how I would define those two ideas in terms. Thank you for that man explanation long explanation yeah my mansplaining of all these intersectional gender issues you explained it far better than i could so <laughs> i did just learn about white feminism last night I, I probably spent a couple hours looking into it and reading it and my issue is that tina fey while not being a terrible white feminist kind of has embodied the issues of white feminism in terms of some of her jokes or some of the issues of race in Kimmy Schmidt and especially in the first season, a lack of representation in the writer's room of uh, writers of color. I looked on the executive producing side of things. And even though Titus Andromeda is a huge, awesome part of the show, it doesn't necessarily seem like uh, there's representation for him in the writer's room. What do you think about that? I think this is something just across the board the entertainment industry needs to get better at. And it's not even a matter of if there is a specific character. If there is, if there is a character like Titus Andromeda, Andromeda, you should absolutely have people of color in the room talking about it. But it's a matter of getting those voices in there behind the. We talk a lot about representation in front of the camera, um, but what often gets left behind is representation behind the camera. So I think those things are equally as important. I do kind of agree that Tina Fey kind of embodies the kind of white feminism aspects of it i think that's mostly like a lot of us uh ignorance over anything else um but that's not ignorance isn't an excuse when it comes to things like this in my opinion but um there seems to be a trend with a lot of entertainment like oh there's one person of color in the show look how diverse and inclusive it is when really like behind the camera in the writer's room all of these things when it's it's really not and the people who are making those choices sometimes can completely miss the mark i'm not sure what the current state of things is now but if it's still kind of a majority white writing room i think they need to fix that and or if it's majority white producers they need to fix that as well representation 100 percent matters and it needs to be addressed in front of the camera and behind the camera jimbo i want to jump in real quick because i think there's a, a tie between what you're saying and what um ash is saying and i think that tie is ignorance you're not showing it but i mean you're talking about it because you're like i looked at this a bunch last night you know two days ago the phrase white feminist didn't necessarily mean anything to you um, and my thing is, in this age of so much online access and such better representation, although it's not great um, in terms of like marginalized voices on the internet, I think that like that island of ignorance is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so the excuse of ignorance to me is getting less and less relevant with more people sharing their voices. I cut you off, Jimbo. Get in there. I'm just going to say that, that that we have talked about the representation on the screen is. I would say not bad, especially like some industry, like some stations are almost right on with, with the U.S. De demographics. But yeah, behind the scenes, there's, there's no stations or production companies that are on top of it as far as even anywhere near 
what it should be as far as half women and pe- people of color being being in the in the room. Ash, we um we read a really cool Annenberg study, like the media um school at USC, mm-hmm. um for when we did our episode of Blackish. And for anyone, we should link to that in the Petardar, but it it does a really great job of like both studying almost two years worth of media and then looking at it demographically, representatively behind the scenes and in front of the camera. Um, and it actually gave a letter grade to a bunch of studios as to how representative they were. None of them got good overall grades, but a couple of them got better progressive grades in terms of like their trajectory and where they were going. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Fox kind of sucks. Oh, I'm so surprised. <laughs> For uh, time purposes, I I think we should move on. But Ash, do you cl- closing thoughts? It's it's great that this show has so many kind of interesting female characters. Very in terms of like intellectual diversity, but they could do better. I think as far as representation. Um, especially a show that is this kind of massively popular now. They have the opportunity to really do something cool and, and, and represent a lot of different people. People can do so much better. We can do so much better. Um, and demanding that of our entertainment is a good way to start, I think. Now what's going to come up is the Petardar. So the Petardar uh, is recommendations for our listeners just based on the pilot viewing experience this could be a show, this could be a podcast, this could be an article, this could be just about anything came to our mind while we were watching this. Uh, Jimbo, what, what's on your petardar for this show? The first one that sticks out to me, it's a short story. It's called If I Were a Ballerina. And for whatever reason, I didn't write down the actual author's name, but there it, it, was, it was in the New Yorker. And on the New Yorker podcast, Emily Kemper reads it. And it is excellent and awesome and so funny like her reading of it is just perfect i don't care who you are stop this podcast and go listen to it it's that funny i already mentioned it the uh, titus holdup parody you should definitely check that out that that was my gateway into kimmy schmidt kingpin by the farley brothers as far as a similar character that's that's going through an identity and like being in a whole new world i almost feel like taking that out now because it's just a bunch of white dudes and then Kimmy Schmidt season four. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued now to watch that, especially that second episode you referenced. The Pinot Noir music video with Titus. That song is a beat. Like that's a bop. And it's also like really, really hilarious. Um Titus gets another shout out in the Petardar. Titus is so talented and he's a phenomenal singer. Oh, he didn't get enough MVP love um on this episode. He he really could have been there. People shit on it a lot, but um, Ellie Kemper is one of the high points of Office season seven through nine. You know that sh- show drops off a little bit when Steve Carell leaves, but she comes in and she has some some really good moments, and she adds some heart to a show that already had a whole bunch of heart. So, um, if you were boycotting um the post Steve Carell um Office episodes, you're missing out on some really good Ellie Kemper. Yeah, I completely agree with that. My first thought was the office stuff with Ellie Kemper, to be totally honest with you. That's a really unoriginal take. But those last seasons are not the strongest that the office has to offer, but. Ash, you're not going to throw 30 Rock out there? Oh, yeah, 30 Rock. That's uh, Go watch 30 Rock if you haven't seen 30 Rock. Like, fix your life. It's an amazing show. Yep, so now we're into part four, or as Jimbo calls it, the fun part, where Jimbo makes fun of me, he cheats, he uh, just stacks the deck against old Drew. Because it amuses him to see me in pain and unhappy. And this is Petard Trivia. So um, we are going to pit myself versus Ash in a uh, bare knuckle trivia contest. 
with some questions that are about the show, surrounding the show, and it is in the all-important quest to become the Petard's Trivia Champ. Uh, Honest John has donated some bling as our championship belt, and Jacob from the Punisher Body Count podcast is the current champion. So uh, this is this is a match for some number one contender status or just getting out there and throwing some elbows. Jacob, we're, we're coming for you. Honest John, we've been checking the mail every day. Where's the bling, brother? Yeah, come on, Honest John. Like, it's the post office. It doesn't cost that much. I am the judge and the jury, and I will decide how all points are awarded. Drew's buzzer is going to sound like this. Buzz. And Ash's buzzer is going to sound like this. Eh. So, question number one. The most complete answer will get the point. Kimmy told Titus he would be singing with two stars at the Grammys. Which two pop stars did Kimmy say Titus would sing with at the Grammys? Buzz. Drew, you're the first to buzz in. Michael Jackson and someone else who died around that time. Ah, Michael Jackson and Prince. It's not Prince, but Michael Jackson and Prince. Fuck. That is not the correct answer. Okay. Ash, would you like to come in for a steal? Was it, it was Whitney Houston and, was it Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston? That is correct. Ash is going to get that point. It is Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson. God damn it. I don't even remember that, but I remember the joke was that they were dead. Yeah. So I was like, oh yeah, okay. That All was right. a good cheap laugh. It was a good cheap laugh. Okay, so Ash has a one nothing lead. Question number two for one point. What type of ranger is Kimmy Schmidt? Context? Sure. Sure. After the boy yells, stranger danger... Kimmy responds by saying she is what type of ranger? <laughs> Buzz. Drew. A non-stranger danger ranger. That is not the correct answer. Points for effort. Ash, would you like to come in for the steal? The only thing I can think of is power ranger, even though that's, pro- that's not correct. That is not correct. I'm going to give the point to Drew. The correct answer is, Kimmy says, quote, I'm a stranger danger ranger. Okay. I can't believe you guys didn't remember that. That was was closer. That was just ridiculous. The jokes were fast and furious on this one. Yes, they were. Okay, so we are going to question number three. It's a 1-1 tie. Question number three. This is going to be worth one point, and there is a bonus point involved, so listen to both parts if you want to try and get both points. Which TV station passed on the show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt prior to Netflix signing the show? And for a bonus point, what was the original title pitched to this TV station? Buzz. Drew. I want to say HBO and Adventures of Mole Women. That is incorrect. Ash, would you like to come in for the steal? I'm going to say NBC, and I don't know the second one. Ash is going to win that one point. It was NBC. It was supposed to be Tooken, T-O-O-K-E-N, was the original title. That's not a good title. Okay. That- it's a good thing they switched it. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be pronounced Tukin. I mean, I'm assuming it's a Taken joke. I guess that's kind of, kind of funny. Uh, or, or in bad taste. Yeah, either way. Okay, it depends on, you know. Yeah, humor subjective. Ash just took the a 2-1 lead. Yeah. Question number four. Best answer will win. The theme song plays homage to what viral media? 
buzz. True. Uh, that's an Antoine Dodson beat uh, when a dude did um, an auto-tune version of his interview. And I believe it's Hide Your Kids, Hide Your Wife. Is that your final answer? It's a pretty complete final answer. Okay. Ash, would you like to build on that answer? I that that's what I was thinking too. So I'm not into. I know it's called hide your kids, hide your wife. I think I'm gonna give that point to Drew. As I shared with you guys, there's another video. It's a Charles Ramsey interview, and then I would have also in I would have also taken. There's a song called Bed Intruder Song that has like the that's an auto tuned type jingle that that also is very similar to the theme song. So so I would have. The best answer would have included all three of those. That that particular song was one of the ones that was floating around on those Peace Corps um, flash drives. Huh. I listened to it quite a few times, and then I had a conversation with someone that made me feel real cringy about enjoying it as much as I did. Ignorance is bliss, my friend. It is. It very much is. That, that statement's not incorrect. It's two to two. The tension is high. Okay, this is going to be our final question. We are in a 2-2 tie. I do have a tiebreaker question that, I, that I'd like to throw out there just because I think it's inf- interesting information. So, question number five, 2-2 tie. How did Ellie Kemper prep for her role as Kimmy Schmidt? Buzz. True. Um, did she interview uh, abduction survivors? No, she did not. Okay. How does one prepare for that? I have, n- I have no idea. I'll pass. I have no idea. We're going to the tiebreaker question no matter what, Jimbo. I yeah I am awarding zero points on that one. So the correct answer is this is quote in in a, her 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 words. First, I binge watched Thirty Rock, so I would immerse myself in the world of Tina and Robert. And then she read my uh th- then she read Michelle Knight's memoir called Finding Me, and and she was a she was a survivor of a very sim- similar like kidnapping. She was in like a basement type thing, and so she wrote a book about it. And Kimmy Schmidt said, uh, these stories were incredible, inspiring, and personified what human strength is. That's lovely. And I'm going to add that to the Petardar, um, Finding Me, the book. Now, our tiebreaker question. This is going so well. <laughs> um, I'm going to take the best answer, and I'm going to... What was the motivation for the mole women and Kimmy Schmidt? Oh, eh. Ash. Oh, God. <laughs> While they're in the cave thing, the bunker thing, not cave, it's bunker, it was like to just survive, I think. That's all, that's really the best thing I can come up with. Or get out, I guess. Maybe get out of the bunker? But some of them didn't want to? I- Buzz. Okay, Drew, for the steal. I would say that based on Kimmy's behavior and based on that rat scene, their motivation was not only to survive but to thrive. You know, they wanted to like live those lives. I mean, they made it, they made a little Christmas tree, you know, and, and then when they got out, they were like, Kimmy, we misjudged it, you know, like it's not winter. So, I mean, I think they were like living these lives of escaping someday. Right, I'm you know? going to cut you off. Um, sorry, Hoisters. I guess I didn't word that properly. I wasn't, I, I, I didn't mean the motivation for the characters. I meant the motivation for creating the characters and the show. And so I'm, I'm just going to read the uh, answer and then we'll move on i do have which one did you like better i mean we I ash like and i either. both interpreted you know, no, it because you guys didn't understand the question and that's my fault i'm gonna i'm gonna take blame for that i apologize for questions i'm not like tina fey the answer that that Good i job, was lo- yes better. the answer that i was looking for 
was something along the lines of they each character is based off like a tabloid story. We have Elizabeth Smart was snatched from her bedroom by a self-styled messiah. We have Janice Duggard was abducted from her front yard. So we also heard that one. And then we do have the Cleveland survivors, three women who were rescued after three years and their neighbor was right next to them the whole time and never knew that the guy was a kidnapper or any type of creep whatsoever. So those, those three things were very much real events and they incorporated each of those into the characters. The only one that was a joke was like the maid that showed up to work. That one um, doesn't seem to be based off of reality. I did like her joke about saying that the other assholes could have learned Spanish. That was funny, man. Yeah. yeah. That that might have been the best joke. Well, okay, but Jimbo, yes. based on our misconception... No, 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 man, we're moving on. So this... No, you, no, no, fuck you. You said that you were going to give a point. Oh, my gosh. You, like, made a big old deal about that. I don't even remember your guys' answers. I kind of tuned them out because it, it, wasn't, it wasn't going in the right direction. Let's just, let, let's just do another tiebreaker. All right, all right, all right. You guys ready for this? Mm-hmm. What song did Kimmy and Titus sing together in the pilot episode? Buzz. True. Circle of Life. Nice. Okay, sorry, Ash. You know, I hate to I hate to end on such a on such a you know beach ball question, but but Drew stepped in. He he was he was prepped. Valiant Spike effort. That beach ball. This this was a a very strong competition. I'm I'm sorry that you know that I blew the last the last question, but you know, no offense, you guys didn't really seem prepared to answer it anyway. So. I liked both of our answers, and I like how we both interpreted them. <laughs> Go ahead, Ash. Sorry. I wouldn't have gotten that in a million years anyway, so it's all fine. In, in Ash's defense, she probably didn't know. She was should have done a little research for this competition. Drew Drew did know. No, I had no idea this competition was a thing. I probably yeah. should have read the show notes a little bit more thoroughly. <laughs> it's okay. Sometimes people don't read the show notes. No, yeah. It's, no. I swear it's I common. read them. It's, it's I just didn't. We have hosts that don't read the show notes, so you know it's fine. You're in you're in good company. All of the podcasts I do, we don't have show notes. We have a topic, and then it it goes from there. Next week, we are going to tackle the pose. Go to our Facebook page, our Twitter, or our website to share your opinions about the pilot episode for the pose, and you could become petard famous. And hoisters, if you can't tell by the plugs, we are about to announce the show is officially over. But if you love us as much as we love us, we're going to stick around for a couple more minutes. And our official intro and outro music was produced by Jake Drew. And you can contact Jake Drew on our website and he can produce some music for you. And you can also follow us on Twitter or you can join our Facebook group. And as always, go to our website to learn more about the podcast and follow our blog so you can participate in our pre-recording discussions. And we are a member of the But Why Though um, community. Uh, you can find our podcasts on their website along with a bunch of other really cool podcasts and articles. And it's been a while for me, but I am writing those retro movie reviews. Constantine, I'm really hoping, goes up this weekend. Nice. It's underrated. I agree. That movie's awesome. So follow Drew in his Get Off My Lawn movie review. Ash, what do you got to plug? Uh, well, like I said at the beginning of the show, I host too many podcasts. I host the Safari Zone, which is a Pokemon show where we talk about pretty much anything and everything Pokemon related. You can find us at, at Safari Zone Pod or also uh, on ButWhyThoughPodcast.com because we're also members of the ButWhyThough Podcast community. Um, and I also write for ButWhyThough a fair amount uh, as well. Yeah, anything from like comics, movies, all sorts of stuff like that. 
And uh, I also have two Star Wars shows. One is called Starships, which is a podcast that's about romantic relationships in Star Wars. Um, every month I take a guest and we just talk about a romantic relationship and it's super fun. And then I also host a show called uh, The Skyhoppers Podcast, which is like a general Star Wars discussion show. And you can find us at SW Skyhoppers on Twitter. Ash wrote a really cool column about uh, the romance of Gambit and Rogue. And as an X-Men, X-Men child of the 90s, I loved it. Oh, thank um, you. So that would be a cool place to jump on, Jimbo. I recommend that column. Nice. What was um? And where where can can we follow you on on Twitter, Ash? Oh, you can follow me on uh, my personal Twitter at airsatsash. Airsatsash. E r s a t z a s h. Ash, that's actually one of my favorite words itself. Airsats, and it is because it's it is what it is. It's a fake foreign word that takes the place in English because we don't have it. And I love that airsats is airsats itself. All right, learned a new word today. Yeah. So, Ash, real quick, tell us where you come down on this uh, Last Jedi debate, mostly because Jimbo and I, uh, we have strong opinions. I'm probably firmly in the middle of it. Um, I don't hate it. I don't love it. It's not the best Star Wars movie. It's definitely not the worst Star Wars movie. Um, I think it's a perfectly acceptable Star Wars movie. There's some decisions that I don't like, uh, some decisions that I love. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's as bad as people like to make it out. Rogue One is my favorite Star Wars movie, so my opinions are all over the place in terms of Star Wars. When I saw it, I thought it was amazing, and after a few months, I'm like, okay, this is a little. I I'm liking this a little bit less as time goes on. But yeah, that's pre- that's pretty much my thoughts on it. Jimbo is not the biggest fan. I am quite the fan, um, as as you can probably guess from me watching the ending a few times. It is actually my favorite Star Wars is New Hope for a couple of different reasons, but um. I've really come into sliding uh, Last Jedi right behind it in front of Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have, through a lot of these discussions, become much more accepting of people's personal criticisms of Last Jedi and people putting it wherever they want. So that's me growing as a, you know, a more accepting member of a fan community. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that like split everybody down the middle, unfortunately. Um, and I feel like a lot of the criticism was warranted. But the like the aggressive kind of behavior about it was absolutely like completely unnecessary. Yeah, that's just stupid. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't like it, you didn't like it. If you loved it, you loved it. People said it was the most divisive Star Wars movie ever made. I'm like, did you not watch Attack of the Clones? Um, but it. <laughs> Jimbo is a prequels apologist. I am a prequels apologist as well, but I-, I can admit that Attack of the Clones is the worst one. <laughs> that's not even true, but. <laughs> but again, my favorite Star Wars movies are Rogue One and Return of the Jedi. So, I absolutely hated The Last Jedi. I honestly think I would rather watch every other Star Wars movie over The Last Jedi. I don't think it's necessarily a terrible movie, but I just, just the things that bother me just bother me so bad that I don't ever want to watch the movie again. Like, I would love a fan edit of just Kylo Ren and Rey. That's fair. One of my contentions, though, is that and Jimbo, you don't embody this, but this is what bothers me about some people's um, criticism of it is The Last Jedi is what fans of IP, like established IP want, you know, which is progression and change in characters, you know, so it's what people say they want, you know, like a grand story with stakes that changes things. But then what people actually want is the same old shit, but you don't sound cool or smart if you say, I want something that, yeah, or, <laughs> yeah, you sound pretentious if you say you want those things, 
you sound kind of dumb if you're like, I want the same old thing that's not going to like push me. And so the thing is, that's not necessarily what I feel like either of you are saying. But when people are like, that's not my Luke or this isn't the story I wanted. I'm like, well, I feel like you might have unnecessary ownership over something that you didn't create. Like you're a fan, not someone that has an ownership stake in this. Oh, yeah, it's the fan entitlement thing that's the most annoying. Like, I can post the most benign opinion about Star Wars. Like, Admiral Holdo is fine, and I will get 12 people telling me how much I'm an, an idiot because Admiral Holdo is great or Admiral Holdo is terrible. Like, it, it's, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's The conversation around it is so toxic. <laughs> I feel the exact opposite of what you said, Drew. I actually think that's why I don't like it. I think it is too much of the old. Whereas, like, mm. I'm tired of the old Star Wars, and I want more of not the old Star Wars. I, I I mean, again, it's it's all subjective. Yeah, I know. I love Luke's characterization. And the thing is, I think that the fact that, like, New Hope is the movie that I like the most, you know, because I know that it's not the critical darling that Empire Strikes Back is, but I really like movies that age with the viewer. You know, I think Goodwill Hunting is another really good example of a movie that means different things to you at different stages in your life. And I think that A New Hope is a good movie that will mean different things to you in different parts of your life and so the fact that like the last jedi continues that story so literally you know like the end of luke's journey someone i know he's gonna be in episode nine um i love that you know and i also love that like he the way that he deals with failure and adversity because i when people are like oh that's not how luke would act i'm like come on man like we all get older you know we all get cynical like we all have life punch us in the face and people that's exactly deal with it how different ways. luke would act I kind of, I'm kind of like in the middle of that because it spends a lot of the, t- of the movie trying to tell you why the old stuff is bad, but at the end it doesn't commit. Like Luke talks about how the Jedi Order like fell because of their hubris, and like objectively he's right. The Jedi Order failed, um, and and they were wrong. And he's like the Jedi in a sense did need to end at least the way that they were in the prequels. Um, and, and but the, the movie doesn't commit. The movie's not like the, Kylo Ren says, "Let the past die, kill it if you have to," but they don't kill it. They're just like. Because Luke at the end goes, you know, the resistance is reborn today and I'm not the last Jedi. That's true. You know, so it, so that's my problem. Like, thematically, that's my issue with it. Is like it wants to tell you, oh, we're changing all these ideas. But at the end, it doesn't do that. It's just, just like, no, but the Jedi you love, is that they're coming back. I, I, I'm going to reserve. I feel like once Nine is out, I'm going to look at the sequel trilogy it, as a complete thing. And I might appreciate some of the stuff that's in Last Jedi more. Because I really like Force Awakens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Jimbo. I, I wish they would have done something like, yeah, the Jedi need to die. But they don't. They're just like, oh, no, they need to come back. And then they burn the tree, but the burning of the tree doesn't mean anything. Because the, the books, books are in the Millennium Falcon. Book- exactly, yes, because the books are in the Falcon. That conversation with Yoda where he's like, she has everything she needs when he's talking about Luke. I, I interpreted that as she doesn't need the old Jedi stuff. She's just a good person and can start a new Jedi Order. But she has the books, so. Yeah. yeah. Movie sucks. <laughs> I thought that was fun. All right, you guys, I got to get going. If you want, if you guys want to keep going, that's on y'all. Nah, I'm yeah, good. I got I to gotta get out of here, too. Every day we hoistling, Drew out. Every day we hoistling, Jimbo out. Every day we hoistle and ash out.